The Federal Small Business Innovation Research Program, known as SBIR, has aided neophyte companies in a variety of domains. The EPA is among the agencies with an active SBIR program, but there's a nagging problem. According to the EPA's Office of Inspector General, conflicts of interest in SBIR contracts. For more, Federal News Network's Tom Temin turned to IG Special Agent Nick Evans. So just briefly for the uninitiated, explain what SBIR is and how it works and how the contracts get let under SBIR. Absolutely. So the SBIR is a set-aside program for small businesses to engage in federally funded research and development. The goal is commercialization of an innovative product. Currently, 11 federal agencies and departments participate. The budget is 3.2% of the agency's extramural research and development budget. Total SBIR budget is approximately $4 billion across the federal government. And of that, uh, as of 2020, a little over half was provided in the form of contracts, while the other half was provided as grants. And how much does EPA have under its SBIR program? Approximately $5 million dollars. Okay, so it's not giant dollars. Are these contracts, by the way, under the federal acquisition regulation, or are there separate rules for SBIR contracts? Yes, sir. They're under the federal acquisition regulations, but they also fall under the EPA's acquisition regulations. Right, so you have a supplement to the FAR that is just for EPA? Yes, that's correct. Okay, well, that puts you right up there with the Defense Department, so congratulations on that one. And what prompted you to take a look at the conflict of interest possibility in the SBIR contract? Well, we are focusing greatly right now on preventing and detecting fraud, waste, and abuse in EPA's programs to include their contracts and grants. You know, the EPA was awarded approximately $100 billion via the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're actively right now looking for ways to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse. The federal government's SBIR program has a history of fraud. As such, the Office of Inspector General is statutorily mandated to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse in the SBIR program. And we identified concerns about conflicts of interest from previous OIG investigations. Got it. And so is a conflict of interest per se fraud, or could it just be an indicator of fraud? Yes, it's just an indicator of fraud. Okay, so you really don't want conflicts of interest then at all in contracts. And so how does it work? I mean, what did you find in this latest round of looking at? What did you look at and what was your sample and so on? So we identified four provisions and clauses in the Environmental Protection Agency acquisition regulation that related to actual or potential conflicts of interest that we felt should be included in SBIR solicitations and contracts. And just briefly, what was your methodology for this look-see? Sure. We uh, reviewed recent SBIR solicitations and contracts to see what provisions they contained regarding conflicts of interest. All right. And what did you find? What we found was that the provisions varied between solicitations and contracts and that the OIG's standpoint is that we wanted to include the strongest conflict of interest provisions possible to prevent fraud, waste, and abuse in the program. We're speaking with Nick Evans. He's special agent in charge of the Eastern Division of the Office of Investigations, part of the EPA's Office of Inspector General. And you did find evidence of conflict of interest in a couple of cases, right? Yes, we did. We identified two different criminal investigations that involved potential conflicts of interest. 
And what form did it take? I mean, who was the conflict with? Was it within the contractors or was it between EPA staff and the contractor? What was the format of it? In one, we had a husband and wife that one of them was representing the awardee that had received the SBIR award. And the other spouse was representing the subcontractor, which was a university. In another example, we identified a husband and wife team where the husband would represent the small business concern and the wife would be the senior scientist on the project. And on the flip side, they would flip those roles and be able to you know, apply for more SBIR awards. Right. So if they had said, for example, under the regulations, look, we're the same household here and this is how we're going about that, would that have helped the situation? Would EPA, have, should they accept that kind of thing? Or is it prima facie conflict of interest when two people that have differing roles are under the same roof? Sure. Our standpoint is the more information, the better. The EPA can make a better determination as to whether they would like to make the award if they have that information available. And just to clarify, in the solicitations that led to these contracts were those four provisions in the EPA FAR supplement related to conflict of interest. Were they included? Not all clauses were included. So it sounds like your recommendation is start including all those clauses. Yes, sir. Is that your major recommendation here? That's our recommendation. Our recommendation is just to include the strongest conflict of interest provision as possible to ensure that, you know, the government's getting a fair deal. And are there any mechanisms you think that the contracting staff can use to make sure people are following the provisions? Because, you know, if they're sort of liars on one end, just because something's in a solicitation doesn't mean they're going to follow that either. Yes, it doesn't. Uh, You're correct. However, I think that, you know, if, uh, you know, what we don't know is what we don't know. And that by including these provisions that hopefully folks will be honest and the government can make a better decision on whether they would like to make that award. Sure. And what was the agency or the program, the SBIR program's reaction to the recommendations and the report? As of yet, I'm unaware of their reactions. Okay. But we hope they agree, right, (laughs) in general? Absolutely. And you also, when the report mentioned concern about SBIR dollars somehow ending up in the hands of companies in countries that are adversarial to the United States. And tell us more about that idea. You know, conflicts of interest could arise due to foreign financial ties or obligations where the contractor may transfer the innovative research developed from federal research and development funding to a country that's adversarial to the United States. And do we know that's happened at all, or is that just another one of those potentials that they need to be keeping an eye out for? It's certainly a concern. And by the way, to the extent that you know, what types of research and innovation is EPA after with its SBIR program? There's a variety of different topics. It is information that's available on the EPA website. What we're looking for here is, you know, items related to clean technology, you know, the manufacturing of efficient and long-lasting, environmentally safe batteries, things of that nature. And maybe making smoke from fires disappear. Hopefully. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if 
I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you gotta understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You wanna think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. So that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that, you that's know? That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, <laughs> Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.